If you want to get a head start today, uh, you can turn to Second Chronicles, right smack in the middle of the Old Testament there, and uh, we'll be in chapter 32 eventually of that chapter, of that book. Uh, some of you know that I have been a tennis player uh, most of my life, and I also really enjoy watching tennis on television. And uh, Wimbledon, you know, the big tournament they have <clears throat> near London, which just ended up a couple of weeks ago, that is by far my, my favorite uh, tournament to watch. It's fun to watch the, just the speed of the game on the grass courts. Got to play on grass one time in England uh, many years ago, and it was, it was a blast. And I just, I just love watching the style of play in that tournament. But one thing I've noticed is um, one of the traditions they seem to have at Wimbledon, and if you've watched any of Wimbledon, you know it's totally steeped in tradition, like everything the Brits do is, you know. But after the matches, what will happen is as the, as the players are coming into the court, they'll enter together through the tunnel. But at the end of the match, when one has, you know, victorious and the other one has, has lost, they will go off kind of different directions. The, the loser will have to kind of very quickly take all of his equipment, put it back in his little bag, and scurry off to the, the side of the court, usually to, you know, mild applause, where the winner gets to hang around and sort of bask in the adulation of the crowd and do interviews and, and wave at everybody and get celebrated for, for quite a while. So it's a very, dis, very big difference um, between what happens, you know, in victory and defeat at Wimbledon. And yet, I noticed something this year that I hadn't noticed before. That inscribed right over the player's entrance to center court at Wimbledon are two lines from a poem by Rudyard Kipling. And a few of you may know this poem or you've heard some of the lines of the poem. It is simply called If. And in this poem, the, the poet is describing to his son the, the character qualities that he will have to have and he will have to develop in order to become a true man. Uh, the poem starts off with some famous lines you may have heard. It goes like this. If you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs and blaming it on you. If you can trust yourself when all men doubt you, but make allowance for their doubting too. And it goes on for a while. But a little farther down in the poem, there's a very famous line that says this. And this is what is inscribed over center court at Wimbledon. It says this. If you can meet with triumph and disaster and treat those two impostors just the same. If you can meet with triumph and disaster and treat those two impostors just the same. And I think this is supposed to be uh, an inspiration for the players at Wimbledon that win or lose, they are supposed to respond in the same way. Win or lose, they're supposed to respond with dignity and poise. There is something that should be deep in their character that remains consistent regardless of the outcome of this tennis match, be it triumph or disaster be it winning or losing. And now, now Kipling does not tell us how to achieve this consistency of character. Uh, he just describes it, which is very inspiring, but maybe not all that helpful for us. It'd be nice to know how we can respond like that. Well, what I want to do today is I want to bring you back to the life of Hezekiah one more time. And I want, I want to look at his experience kind of through this lens. Two weeks ago, we saw Hezekiah's character really come through when he dealt with what you might call disaster. He was suddenly diagnosed with a fatal illness, and he responded with certainly a very raw display of emotion, but he also responded in, in very strong faith in God. Now this week, we're going to see the other side of the coin for Hezekiah. We're going to see triumph. How does Hezekiah respond 
to triumph? How does he respond to some positive developments? You may remember two weeks ago I told you this, that I said the big climax of Hezekiah's life and Hezekiah's reign is going to happen in 701 B.C. when the mighty Assyrian army, the most powerful army on earth, is going to show up at the gates of Jerusalem to take it over and take the Jews captive and expect to, to completely destroy the city. And that's going to be the climax of this whole experience. But I said, remember, before that, there are going to be two big tests for Hezekiah that he's going to have to go through. The first one was his mortal illness. It was a test involving disaster, if you will. The second test is going to involve triumph, or if you will, prosperity. Today I want to ask the question, what does faith look like in times of prosperity? What does faith look like in our lives when things are going well? You know, when you get the dream job you applied for, when you get into that college that you wanted to go to, when your kids are doing well in school and in life, when your church is thriving and you found your place in it, when your finances are stable and sufficient, when it seems like you're getting along with everyone and, and, and in general the people whose opinion you care about the most like you and respect you and appreciate you, what about times like that? Some of you are saying, wait, when does this happen? But it it does. Admit it, there are good times. Maybe it's more relatively speaking from time to time, but there are times that things go well. And in, in fact, for many of us, and I would say for most of us, the test of prosperity is more difficult and more dangerous to our faith and our spiritual life than the test of adversity. Now, You can probably guess us some reasons why that would be the case. But let's just look first at what happens to Hezekiah, what his experience is. Because quite honestly, he passed the test last time. But this one, there's going to be a different story. 2 Chronicles chapter 32, starting in verse 24, and we'll read through 31. It starts off by kind of summarizing what we talked about two weeks ago. In those days, verse 24, Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death. And he prayed to the Lord, and he answered him and gave him a sign. But Hezekiah did not make return according to the benefit done to him, for his heart was proud. Therefore wrath came upon him and Judah and Jerusalem. But Hezekiah humbled himself for the pride of his heart, both he and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the wrath of the Lord did not come upon them in the days of Hezekiah. Verse 27, and Hezekiah had very great riches and honor, and he made for himself treasuries for silver, for gold, for precious stones, for spices, for shields, and for all kinds of costly vessels, storehouses also for the yield of grain, wine, and oil, and stalls for all kinds of cattle and sheepfolds. He likewise provided cities for himself, and flocks, and herds in abundance, for God had given him very great possessions. Verse 30, the same Hezekiah closed the upper outlet of the waters of Gihon and directed them down to the west side of the city of David. And Hezekiah prospered in all his works. And so in the matter of the envoys of the princes of Babylon, who had been sent to him to inquire about the sign that had been done in the land, God left him to himself in order to test him and to know all that was in his heart. We're going to look more closely in a couple minutes about this incident involving the envoys from Babylon, but for now let's just look at what Second Chronicles says about what it tells us. It notes that God greatly blessed Hezekiah with wealth and honor. And we, we read that verses 27 to 29 is very, it describes all of this, and the magnitude of Hezekiah's wealth, to me at least, is astounding 
considering Judah's precarious position in the world at this time. I mean, you would think that a nation like this would be on, on wartime footing, you know, with kind of a wartime economy. And yet, look at all this, this, this wealth. And I, I don't want to read too much into the grammar here, but did you notice that Hezekiah is the subject of most of the sentences? He made himself treasuries. He provided himself cities. Now, Hezekiah did not, it isn't that he went and, and failed to defend his people. He did defend his people. He wasn't like Nero, you know, fiddling while Rome burned or anything like that. He, in fact, verse 30 describes one of the greatest and most celebrated feats of civil engineering in the ancient world. Very famous. Every archaeologist knows about this. The tunnel that Hezekiah had dug in order to divert all of the fresh water from the Gihon Spring. There was a spring just kind of to the, uh, to the west of the River Jordan in, in the Rift Valley, and that spring was in a cave. And that is where a lot of the fresh water for Jerusalem came from up in that spring. And what Hezekiah did was he, he, he dammed off that spring on the outside of the cave so that nobody outside the city could get to the water, but he had a tunnel dug all the way from that spring into the west side, well, southwest part of Jerusalem, the Pool of Siloam, so the water would come up there. It was an incredible feat of engineering, and it would allow the people of Jerusalem to have water while anyone who was laying siege to the city would not have access to it. A brilliant thing. But in all of this, in all of this, Hezekiah seems to be taking center stage. And God, for a time, seems to be pushed to the side or maybe even to leave the stage. And then the passage pointedly tells us that in the matter of the Babylonian envoys, God left him alone or left him to himself, left him to his own devices to see what the spell of blessing and prosperity and productivity had done to Hezekiah's heart. Now, to get the details on this, um, it's not here in Second Chronicles. You have to go to Kings or Isaiah. So just for now, look back at the account with me in Second Kings. Turn to Second Kings chapter 20. Second Kings 20. And when you get there, go to verse 12. Second Kings 20, starting in verse 12. This is the description of this visit from these Babylonians. At that time, Merodach Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon sent envoys with letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he heard that Hezekiah had been sick. And Hezekiah welcomed them, and he showed them all the treasure house, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, his armory, all that was found in his storehouses. There was nothing in his house or in all his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. Then Isaiah the prophet came to King Hezekiah and said to him, what did these men say, and from where did they come to you? And Hezekiah said, they've come from a far country, from Babylon. He said, what have they seen in your house? And Hezekiah answered, they have seen all that is in my house. There is nothing in my storehouses that I did not show them. Verse 16. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who shall be born to you shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of the Lord you have spoken is good. For he thought, Why not, if there will be peace and security in my days? <clears throat> Former President Ronald Reagan, he tells the story of something that happened to him. Um, back when he was governor of California, actually, so long time ago. But he was making a speech down in Mexico City. And he says this, After I finished speaking, I sat down to rather unenthusiastic applause, and I was a little embarrassed. 
The speaker who followed me spoke in Spanish, which I didn't understand, and he was being applauded about every paragraph. To hide my embarrassment, I started clapping before everyone else and longer than anyone else until our ambassador leaned over and said to me, I wouldn't do that if I were you. He's interpreting your speech. See, so it's, it's not good form to be caught clapping for yourself. But that's kind of what's happening to Hezekiah here in this account. He's basically, he's basically come to this point of self-congratulation and, and self-applause. What, what Second Chronicles hints at a kind of creeping overconfidence and self-dependence that comes with all the successful activity and accumulation that Hezekiah has been involved in. This, this kind of thing has now blossomed into outright pride. So when these, these guys get here from Babylon, Isaiah says, hey, where did those guys come from? Did you notice how Hezekiah kind of added some things there? He said, oh, they came, they came from a far country. They came from way far away, uh, from Babylon. Now, Isaiah knows where Babylon is. Isaiah wrote an entire chapter of his prophecy to Babylon. He knows about Babylon. But Hezekiah's like, oh, they came from... My, my fame has spread, obviously, for hundreds and hundreds of mile, miles. Even the Babylonians know about me. These guys had reportedly come to congratulate Hezekiah on his miraculous recovery from illness. But as Chronicles tells us, Hezekiah's response to this miraculous healing seems to have been to start believing his own press. Obviously... Since God had decided to heal him like that, he must be really, really special. After all, who else was going to stand up for the Assyrians, right? In other words, Hezekiah, though he responded to, to, with faith to the report of his sudden illness, responds in a very different way to his healing. He took the wrong message from experiencing God's favor, mistakenly concluding from that that this was all about him, not all about God. And this led him to show off to show off all these riches and all of his splendor to these friendly, flattering officials from the place called Babylon. Babylon. Of course, when we hear the name Babylon, you and I think of something a little bit different than what Hezekiah would have thought of in his days because we know some things that Hezekiah didn't know. Namely, that it wasn't Assyria that would ultimately conquer Jerusalem and, and destroy Solomon's temple. It was Babylon. And the word Babylon has come to stand for pride and materialism and false religion and pretty much everything that is opposed to God. That's Babylon. And in fact, do you really think that these envoys from Babylon were just making a social call? No. They weren't there just to congratulate Hezekiah on his recovery. This was a reconnaissance mission. These guys were, were sizing up the nation of Judah, first in, in the short run as an ally against Assyria because Babylon wanted to take over Assyria too eventually, but in the long run as a target for conquest. And Hezekiah in his pride just smiled his way through the whole thing and kind of gave away the store. But you know what? There's nothing unique about Hezekiah here, is there? All of us, we all have a strong tendency when things are going well to start applauding ourselves. If not, not on the surface, right? Because anybody with a little bit of class knows how to hide their pride and not be applauding themselves on the outside all the time. Maybe a few people struggle with that, but most of us are classier than that. But what about in our minds? Right? There's something inside of us that, that wants to be congratulated, that wants to be the center, that wants to, to, in, to inhabit center stage and doesn't really want to share the stage with anybody, even God. It's in all of us. And eventually, if that happens and if that is allowed to develop and grow and cultivate, it's going to show up. It's going to show up in our attitude. It's going to show up in our way of carrying ourselves. It's going to show up in our tone of voice. It's going to show up 
maybe for a lot of us in our, our unwillingness to listen to the thoughts and opinions of others, or maybe an inability to accept correction or criticism when it comes our way, or maybe just a quiet contempt for people who are less intelligent, less with it, less on top of things, less blessed than we are. Meanwhile, we forget that in the famous list in the book of Proverbs, where it says in Proverbs 6, there are seven things that the Lord hates. Number one is a proud look. Number one. Another way this shows up in our lives is something that Al may have alluded to last week, and that is prayerlessness. Prayerlessness. Most of us, most of us have a reflex to pray when we face adversity, when we face tough times, when we face disaster, right? Hezekiah, when Hezekiah first learned of the gravity of his illness, he, he immediately sought the Lord. He immediately, it says he immediately, he, Isaiah was talking to him and he immediately turned away, he turned his face to the wall and he prayed right away. That was his reflex. But when, when things started going well, Hezekiah didn't react the same way. For a time, he actually seems to have maybe not forgotten God, but at least forgotten that desperate moment when he had to cry out to God. And this is one of the reasons that is, I believe it is so important for us to develop what I'm going to call a reflex of thanksgiving. A reflex of thanksgiving. God says in Psalm 50, Mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. The one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. We need a reflex of thanksgiving. How do you develop a reflex of thanksgiving? You might say, well, how do you develop any reflex? I mean, maybe that's not quite the right word. Right? But how do, you, how do you develop a reflex, kind of an auto-response, that when good things happen, when good things come into your life, you immediately praise and thank the Lord? Well, well it doesn't just happen. Anyone here who has ever learned a sport or learned how to play a musical instrument or learned to do something like that very well, you know that when you practice something enough, it becomes second nature. If somebody hits me a backhand, I automatically switch to my backhand grip when I'm playing tennis. If I'm coming into the net, I automatically split my feet and put my weight on the balls of my toes when the ball's coming. I don't think about it. It just happens. And you have things in your life that you develop that kind of a reflex for as well. It becomes second nature. So thanking God Thanking God, being grateful to God for every good thing that comes into your life, it, it may start out as a discipline where you kind of have to make yourself do it. You may even have to schedule a time, usually at the end of the day, when you look back on the day and you rehearse God's goodness to you over the last 24 hours. But you know what? Eventually, that becomes a habit, even a reflex. And it's a reflex that always honors God. Thanksgiving there's no way to overrate the importance of thanksgiving and gratitude in the life of a Christian. But there's one other reflex that you need to develop when good things happen. And this one's maybe not so obvious, but this one's also in Psalms. And, and you find it in Psalm 116 where the psalmist says this. He says, here, first he asks a question. He says, what shall I return to the Lord for all of his goodness to me? And then he answers the question. I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. In other words, when God blesses me, when God blesses me, when he does something good in my life, what I'm going to do is I'm going to remind myself of my dependence upon him by asking him to bless me again. I will continue to call upon his name for all of my needs, even while I'm in the process of enjoying his most recent benefits and blessings. 
Isn't that a beautiful picture? How can you pay God back? How can you ever pay back a God who has everything, a God who is a God of grace, a God who has reached out and given to you so freely? How can you pay back that God? You can't. You can't. It's crazy to even think about that. But you can honor him by continuing to depend upon him in gratitude, expecting him to do even more great things in your life. Now, the Bible tells us that God eventually had to, to humble Hezekiah because Hezekiah's pride, it, it was getting bad and it was spreading to the people and it was about to bring God's wrath down on the whole nation of Judah. Well, what did this humbling consist of? What, what happened? A young woman once made an appointment with her pastor, not this pastor, but she, she wanted to talk with him about a besetting sin in her life. So they made the appointment, and she came into his office. She said, Pastor, I have become aware of a sin in my life that I cannot control. Every time I'm at church, I begin to look around at the other women, and I realize that I am the prettiest one in the whole congregation. None of the other women in our church can compare to my beauty. What can I do about this sin? I can't stop thinking about this. And the pastor replied, Mary, that's not a sin. That's just a mistake. Now... That, that, sorry Mary, that was just a name that, you know, anyway, <clears throat> that, that fictional pastor may have been, you know, taking his job into his hands there, but, but sometimes, sometimes that's what we need, right? We need, a, we need a splash of cold water in the face to wake us up to reality. Has it ever happened to you? Like, you get a harsh word from somebody, and the first thing you want to do is slap them, but then you suddenly realize that he's telling you the truth. You get a sudden setback that messes up all of your grand plans. Or maybe it's just a moment when you're in the Word of God and the Bible breaks through and something hits you in the heart. You get kind of a vision of God's glory almost, like Isaiah had in the temple, and you see His holiness and you see your own sinfulness, and at that moment, your pride is broken. Whenever that kind of thing happens, pray. Pray that you will recognize the humbling voice of God and that you won't defy Him and that you will be truly broken and humbled by it. Because those are precious times. That's an opportunity you have to be healed. Hezekiah, somewhere along the line, received the, the valuable gift of God's humbling. We don't know whether it was when he first heard Isaiah's prophecy about Babylon. Probably not, as we'll see. It must have happened later. But maybe it happened later on, because what happened was later on in Hezekiah's reign, the Assyrian army started marching toward the gates of Jerusalem, and on the way to do so, it had to go through a lot of the nation of Judah, and the Assyrian army pretty much just devastated the whole countryside of, Ju of Judah and, and, and ravaged dozens of towns, likely killing hundreds and hundreds of people. And maybe Hezekiah looked out at what was going on in his country and he realized what is happening here was just like what had happened in the time of David when David got prideful and took a census that the pride of the king might be resulting in the death of his people. Maybe it wasn't until that final moment when we'll see this next week when he receives that final ultimatum from the Assyrian general at the gates of his city. We don't know exactly when it happened, but at some point, Hezekiah got the message from God, the message that said, hey, you're not all that. You're not the king of glory. You are not self-sufficient. Stop believing your own press. Can't you see what's happening to you and to your people? And it hit Hezekiah. 
in the heart, and he repented, and God spared his city. But there's one other kind of disturbing moment in here, and you probably noticed it, and I think we need to pay attention to it. It's at the very end of the, the king's passage. It's when Isaiah tells Hezekiah, he says, your own sons that come from your own body, they will be taken into captivity in Babylon. And this actually happened temporarily with Hezekiah's son Manasseh, but then it happened permanently with his great-great-grandchildren. But Hezekiah responds by saying, in effect, well, I guess that's okay, as long as it doesn't happen in my days. Doesn't that sound horribly self-centered? Doesn't that sound almost apathetic? I have have tried to find ways, you know, because the Bible doesn't comment on some of these things. And I've tried to find ways to make excuses for Hezekiah's words here, but it's awful hard. I guess the best way to put it is like this, that Hezekiah's love and compassion and care for his people had reached its limit. He had nothing left to spare for the future generations. And, and you know, if you think about it, he faced more stress. We talked about it a few weeks ago. He faced more stress. He faced more different, all crazy problems than any other king probably that ever inherited the throne of Judah. There was a lot on his plate. And, and maybe we can excuse him by saying, hey, there was just too much. It was, just, it was too much to ask that you would really act for the benefit of future generations and not just your own. I don't know. Maybe it's disappointing to you, but I think it reminds us of an important truth, and that's this. Every human leader will one day fail you. Every human leader will fail. No matter how wonderful, how skilled, how loving, how wise, no matter how devoted that person at times may be, every human leader, every father, every mother, every grandparent, every employer, every president, every pastor, every mentor, every best friend, there will come a time when that person will in some way fall short and let you down. Because none of us are without sin. None of us have perfect motivation even for the good things that we do. None of us have limitless energy and limitless patience and limitless compassion and limitless love. Listen, there is only one person who can handle the burden of being your Savior. There is only one person that can handle the burden of being your ultimate provider and your unfailing friend. There is only one person who will never fall off of that pedestal. Everyone else will fall off it. Hezekiah, as wise and faithful a king as he was, obviously was not that person. But he does point us to that person, if only by falling short of what that person that future king would one day accomplish. There's, a, there's an intriguing statement in 2 Chronicles 32, 31. It says this. It says, The Babylonian envoys had come to inquire of Hezekiah about the sign that had been done in the land. Well, what was the sign? Well, it, we talked about it two weeks ago. The sign was that when Hezekiah was healed, he asked for a sign, and, and so Isaiah said, well, here's a sign God's going to give you, and the sign involved a shadow going back on a staircase 10 steps, and, and the shadow going forward turned around and went the other direction on the staircase that Ahaz had built, which they used as kind of a sundial in the palace in Jerusalem. Well, that was the sign. Well, that wouldn't really have been a sign in Babylon, right? 
I mean, maybe they had heard about it, but just something that happened in a staircase in a palace in Jerusalem wouldn't necessarily be a sign in, in Babylon. Or would it? Or would it? How did God do that thing? I mean, you get to thinking, what if God actually did some cosmic galaxy-altering miracle to make that shadow go backwards? And, and maybe, what if the astrologers over in Babylon had noticed that something funky had happened in the heavens on the day that Hezekiah had been healed? And what if they had traveled from that faraway land all the way to Jerusalem to ask the king of Judah about that strange sign they had seen in the east and brought a gift with them? Does that sound familiar at all? That's weird. 700 years later, some wise men, envoys if you will, came to Judea to see the king in the palace at Jerusalem. Why? Because they'd seen a sign in the sky. Now, oddly enough, they didn't end up in Jerusalem. They ended up at this small town called Bethlehem, looking into the face of the true king of Israel, Hezekiah's great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandson. And instead of being shown riches and wealth and majesty, what did they see? They saw something a lot more humble, didn't they? They saw a little baby born to an impoverished young couple. But that baby was the eternal king. That baby was the king who was God. This king, the New Testament tells us, had taken on the form of a servant, making himself of no reputation, being made in the form of a human being like us, being a true human being, and then being obedient even unto death, death on a cross. And he did this to pay the price for all of your pride and mine. All of our willfulness, all of our thanklessness, all of our prayerlessness, all of our failure to remember God, all of our thinking that we're all that, all of, our, our, of your foolish attempts and mine to be our own Savior. He died for that. Hezekiah had exalted himself, and so God had to humble him. God didn't have to humble Jesus. Why? He humbled himself. And then God exalted him. And this exalted king, unlike Hezekiah, unlike you and me, will never fail. His compassion will never fail. It'll never run out. His protection will never fail. His justice will never fail. His salvation will never fail. In the bad times and, and even in the good times, Jesus will never fail you. He will never fail you. So stop trusting in yourself and trust in Him. Let's pray.